0: Hey, good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I am Felicia King, and today we have Dan Moyer, and he is with QPC, and he is a systems and network security engineer, and Dan has many, many, many years of experience in the IT services industry and has many special qualities, one of which is he's got OCD for vulnerability management, and uh, I think that's an accurate assessment. What do you think, Dan?
1: Uh, Yeah because I tend to go (laughs) off the rails when I find stuff, or at least identify what we're going to do about it. Well,
0: that is though, that is though what is necessary. That is absolutely what's necessary, right? Because risk management is eternal vigilance. So hence, that's why we wanted to do this show today. And we're going to be talking about vulnerability management patch management and all the things that business owners are generally not understanding adequately and as a result of that they're being underserved misled and in some cases lied to and ripped off and ultimately they're not getting what they need to get because they are refusing to pay for what they need because they don't understand what they need so we're going to try and fill that gap so let's start first with this first question of what is actually the difference between vulnerability management, and patch management. And I've covered this on some prior shows where I've said basically that patch management is an old paradigm. The only paradigm that matters at this point in time with regards to this set of topics is holistic vulnerability management. So it's software bill of materials analysis, supply chain risk management, third-party risk management, you know all kinds of those sorts of things about you know are we looking at end of life software? Is our asset inventory up to date? What's our life cycle management? Um, how frequently are we doing continue? Are we doing continuous vulnerability assessment? How frequently are we doing penetration tests? Uh, how frequently are we doing tabletop exercises? Uh, how how frequently are reviewing every piece of software that we have in an entire environment? to make sure that that isn't creating a vulnerability for us. You know, how frequently are we doing these things and what's actually on this whole list of things that we're doing? Oh, another great example is have we revised our procurement policy to ensure that we're only acquiring assets that support our vulnerability management efforts such as Dell computers with Dell command update, Dell servers that can do firmware BIOS driver updates and software updates for Dell related things. Uh, What are we doing about, uh, you know, vulnerability management with every piece of network equipment and NASes, et cetera, surveillance cameras, right? You, You know, you can't just go over to Sam's club and go buy some Chinese surveillance cameras. You can't go buy some old, you know, weird door controller system. What's the cybersecurity risk to your environment from some El Cheapo door controller system, right? So so when we're talking vulnerability management, we're really talking the full matzo ball here. And very, very few people think about this in a holistic way. So let's just break this down a little bit more to a concrete area. Now that we've had this, this high level view, let's talk about it in terms of Windows servers, Windows PCs, because I think if, if people understand that concept of just what does it take to manage my Windows PCs, my Windows servers, then maybe they can start understanding how to extrapolate that to everything else in their environment. Like, you know, how am I managing the vulnerabilities that exist in Office 365 or Office software on the endpoints? Or our VPN, what are we doing about that? You know, what are we doing about the vulnerabilities associated with not doing proper password hygiene in the environment. Well, now we're getting. I'm sorry, I'm tangenting here for a second, but I'm. It's it's provoking all of these ideas about what really is vulnerability management, and the and I see where cybersecurity insurance applications, they're not actually really asking about patch management. They're asking two primary questions, maybe three. They say, you know, when did you have your last uh, penetration test, and Uh, do you have continuous vulnerability assessment in place? And then they're asking, how long are you going to go without having the patches applied in the environment? Well, in order to be successful answering that third question, you actually have to have a correct definition of what is included in the patches. What is included in, vulnerability management because a patch could be a BIOS update on a computer. And what I tend to find is that the vast majority of IT service providers and internal IT
1: do not have correct
0: definitions for those. So what are your thoughts, Dan?
1: And you bring up a point of the the tangent piece of everything will spiderweb off of it. But starting with the Windows server, Windows pat- Windows patches in general, is a good way to start in like a crawl, walk, run phase because it does get complicated fairly quickly. But with the drivers from the insurance company, they're looking at how are they minimizing their risk? Because at the end of the day, they're a business. And if they're having to pay out insurance uh, insurance claims, they're going to run, they're going to go out of business. So trying to still build their actuary tables to figure out some of this stuff. This is how they're working at it at the current time, and will change. But patches are, like you had said, is can run anywhere from a software update, which is new and improved UI, new and improved features, to security-related items, or fixing broken pieces, to hardware firmware, and anything in between, because patches are the, the building blocks that are improving the software that lives on the hardware. Without software, you can't interact with the piece of hardware unless it's purely mechanical. And even then, there's still improvements of usage. So how do, you, how do you manage those things? How do you understand that? Are you going to look at being a person uninformed, unwilling to learn what is required to maintain your piece of equipment that is running your your business, running a key piece of functionality, anything of those. Okay, that's that's one perspective to take. It's not going to be great for you in the long run because it's going to cost you time, energy, money for addressing things, things are broken. And those threat actors that are outside of the halls of your business, anybody that's on the internet, they're actively looking for ways to take advantage of equipment, people for whatever their purpose in life is ransoming you for money, just creating a bad day for you because they're anarchists, they might have a political agenda against you or your business. There are too many facets in this world of people have directives to cause harm or cause anarchy because they can't, whether they care about your business, your employees, or anything else. So from a, a patching perspective, being educated and informed and doing your due diligence for your business, your employees, everything of those natures, it's a good basis of understanding what those patches are, require, need, and these patches can be um, provided to you. If we're talking Windows, Windows does have updates. It's great. It's fine and dandy. But Microsoft's perspective is we're going to provide it to you. You download it. Well, we're not responsible if it interacts poorly with other software or breaks things because at the end of the day, it's not their responsibility. It's you as the owner of the piece of equipment to determine those things. So
0: yeah, and Windows update too, is rather incomplete. It just doesn't have visibility into me, for example, it won't even tell you that your SQL server needs to be patched. Uh, it's it's not. SQL update, it's Windows update. Right,
1: and you bring up a you
0: know, It doesn't do Visual C++. It may or may not actually apply .NET framework updates, visibility. I've just noticed so many things that if you don't have a full third-party patch catalog that's actually thorough, and that's another interesting bit, is the lack of thoroughness in a third-party patch catalog. You know, like an Avanti catalog has, I think, 4,000-plus applications in there. But yet what I frequently see on IT service provider proposals is they're telling business owners that they can patch their servers and their endpoints for $50 a month. And what they're saying is, well, we automate Windows updates and some third-party patches. So what are those some some third-party patches? What isn't
1: included in that? How frequently are those third that that tool that's doing third-party patches acquiring updates? I've seen tools that are like, well, we'll we'll pick up the update that something gets released within thirty days and then pushes it down. So now you're looking at potentially thirty plus days to get a third-party patch. Well, the day and age of information and people finding vulnerabilities, things it comes fast and heavy and understanding your risk profile in those things. And this kind of stems back to the vulnerability component of it is going Apple released last week or the week before a zero day that was on all Apple products. And it was to the extent that even they patched some of the very old pieces of equipment that they said they would no longer patch for. And it's like, well, do you know what you have in your environment? Oh, well, I don't know. Okay, we, we talk about asset management. Vulnerability assessment. Okay, Apple put out this update for stuff. What's, what's the risk profile for not doing it right away? Can somebody take advantage of it remotely? Or do they need to physically have access to your phone? You this know, is I- kind of where we stem into prioritization of vulnerabilities that come up. And understanding yeah, and- timeline for those things.
0: Well, I, I want to reiterate that you can't secure what you don't have an accurate inventory for.
1: Yes, hardware, yeah. software, subcomponents of said software, and that's the one that usually gets left out, is my, my software requires .NET Framework XYZ or some other Microsoft product for every install, but I need to maintain it. Okay. Well,
0: yeah. And, and, you know, to that end, most IT organizations, and I'm just going to say I've never actually seen an IT organization other than a very, very highly sophisticated, professionally run IT service provider that has an accurate inventory and is actively looking for these things and properly classifying them. And, and so, I mean, it's just hard. And, A lot of this stuff you have to do on on the the front end, like give you a great example of this. You know, software bill of materials, from my perspective, has always been a thing. Well, CISA just started making software bill of materials a thing maybe for the last couple of years. I mean, I think it's been in the NIST framework for many, many, many years, if not 20 years. The idea has always been, you should understand if you, whoever is doing the first implementation of something in an environment they need to be going through a specific process for that. This is exactly why you should never, under any circumstances, just hire some software vendor and allow them to have remote control of your servers and just like, hey, we're gonna install the thing. You know. So all these business owners, they think, hey, I'm gonna save money. I'm gonna engage project services or professional services from the software provider. And then I'm gonna tell my IT people, to just give them free willy access to the servers and let them do whatever. Well, you really miss out a lot in doing that process. And in nowadays uh, where you have zero trust threat protection software involved, that isn't even mechanically feasible anymore. But one of the massive holes that gets created is the IT staff don't know what the software dependencies are. They don't know how that specialty business line application or whatever it was, they don't know how it's affecting the environment. They don't know what it's dependent upon. So somebody's got to be looking at like, oh, my goodness, I went and bought this Brother printer. And gee, it's a brand new Brother printer. But you know, Brother hasn't updated their software since like 2014. Gee, what do we get with that? Well, we get Visual C++ 2010 runtime and that's unpatchable and it's been deprecated for a really really long time so who did the software bill of materials analysis on that what's your procurement policy that supports your vulnerability management strategy where somebody needs to be looking at that stuff and saying hey pump the brakes you know no more brother printers because they don't have any software updates and we can't be taking step backwards in our cybersecurity posture by engaging in the introduction of deprecated software into our environments. And so the thing I see happening across all the IT departments that we've ever supported is that they get petrified about breaking something. You know, some sort of a directive comes out that says, well, we need to clean up all this end-of-life software in the environment. They're like, well, we've, we've no idea what that needs. No idea. And then executive management is like, don't break anything, don't break anything. And then nobody ends up having the guts to go and uninstall the whatever and see what breaks. And they never had the discipline in the beginning to document properly during the initial application introduction process that when you install this thing, this is the process. You will screenshot control panel before and after. You will run process explorer and watch what it does. Funny story for you true story. There's a product called PC Myler. And I was following my best practice for implementing PC Myler at one point in time, PCM25. So version 25 specifically on premise. I think PC Myler is all just online now, but I was sitting there doing, you know, my standard best practice, watching things. What does it do? And I could tell you some AS400 software uh, stories too, but I'm watching this thing. And it starts running cackles. And I'm like, what in the world is this thing running cackles for? And I watch what it does. And it basically blew up the root C drive permissions on the entire computer. And it made everyone full control. This is PC Miler. So now imagine your internal IT and you got PC Myler software tech support telling you to just follow the defaults on their software installation. In the meantime, their software installation just destroyed all the security that was on your computers,
1: and you had no idea. It's basically the the same ana- – so I, I like analogies. So, like we talked about installing software that you're not following the perspective. Would you be willing to give somebody the key to your house while you're not home to come install whatever and not tell you – maybe the electrical needs it was for it because they just decided to throw stuff in, some homing stuff, other sort of stuff. And then you find out, you come home like, oh, I have this new thing. Not realizing all of the other pieces and parts that are now kind of spiderwebbed off into the rest of your house and realize if you turn off your TV, it turned off your furnace. What? Okay. Or with the, the PC Biler, it just blew up permissions. It's just like you have those same people install that widget into your house well in the process they've decided to uninstall all your deadbolts and doorknobs to your house and then they leave that's essentially what has just happened (laughs) so if somebody comes and let's say a threat actor manages to get in your network or just somebody who doesn't know what they're doing now has full permissions to do whatever where, who, whose fault is that? Yep. Cause it, it's not the vendors, cause they're just going, here's how we get your software installed. Right. And that's the scope of the work pr-
0: they've been engaged for, too. You know, right. and, and, and that's why I think that the, the thing that really irks me the most is when executive management creates the problem by not supporting proper security protocols to be implemented by the IT department. When you have some business decision maker that's like, hey, we've bought this stuff. You just need to get it implemented. And so now there's all this pressure, whether it be on the IT service provider or internal IT. You, you just need to get it implemented. And then they flip a biscuit when you know there's problems. Like, whoa, pump the brakes. You know, are you aware that the API for this thing is is hideously insecure? You know, are you aware that, you know, th- this thing is basically going to make, uh, there's no SQL injection protection for your primary business line application database? And that the software provider, through their end user license agreement, has put all of that liability on you, even though you have no control over it. They have full control over it. They won't even tell you what they're doing to follow OWASP API standards and best practices. They won't even tell you that. They won't even tell you you that they've got a, a vulnerability assessment system in place, right? So how do you trust this third party, but yet you're supposed to just open your door to an API to them?
1: And then whatever tools and access they have. So you may get a... Uh, vulnerability introduced into your system not through their actual software but the tools they use to remote into your systems and how do you know who has access to remote access to your your systems yeah does everybody do they use a shared password those types of things
0: well um, you know that brings yeah, but, up a whole nother interesting element which is how many it service providers conduct themselves you know, there's this big fallacy that hey, we're a big 60-person company and we've got an you know an off-site, you know, an offshore help desk in India. How exactly are they doing privileged session management, privileged access management, password management? How exactly are they doing that? Because in the majority of cases, what they've got is those 60 plus people are all using the same user ID and password to log on to the client systems. And and that, you know there was a whole thing back in 2016, it was this really big drama that was going on where I felt as though there was a lot of fraud occurring in the IT services industry where most IT service providers did not disclose to their customers that if the customer was going to go with them, then how many people would end up having full admin level access to the customer' stuff on the back end? And many of these organizations were using like live virtual help desk in Canada. and and you know, so it's like, okay, we got 200 people now that have admin access. Or they were using the continuum knock. Well, that was 700 people in Mumbai. And what about Rackspace? If they gave delegated admin to Rackspace to their office 365 tenant, That was over 200 people through a counterparty risk had full admin access to the tenant. And every single time I went to a business owner and I asked them, do you consent to that many people having admin access to your stuff? Well, first their eyes popped out of their head and then they were like, well, heck no, I don't consent to that. But I've never yet seen a business decision maker actually ask these questions about if we do business with you, exactly how many people will have admin access to our resources.
1: Yeah. It's, 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 what is their, the end company's onboarding process for software vendor, those types of stuff. I always see it the other way around an MSP or IT service provider doing an onboarding question so they can figure out, Hey, what are we walking into? Because we haven't done an assessment on you yet or done those types of things to understand, well, what are we walking into? Cause you could be walking into a taking time bomb or, but never, never the other way around. Like this is what the fancy spreadsheets are for of a racy matrix. So you have all your predefined questions. You can ask them all the time. This is how you're doing supply chain risk management of hey, we're going to do your software. Okay, who's having access? What is installed with it? So on and so on. And determine what is that profile? And be like, yeah, we can't accept this level of risk, so we're not going to pick you. But that's a lot of effort, time, thought, power, all of those things to do that ahead of time. And... But, but it's cheaper. Right. People are unwilling, right. People it, are unwilling che- to go through it, unwilling to do it. But yes, it is a cheaper cost. It's cheaper to do it up front. Correct.
0: Which is why we are such a strong advocate of organizations modifying their procurement policies. And recent example, I had a a CFO who was smart enough to pump the brakes on a... Uh, internal business manager and the business manager wanted to implement this thing. And he says to the CFO, Oh, it's only 20 bucks a month. So CFO reaches out to me and I'm like, okay, well, let me take a look at it. I looked at it and actually it would have increased their, the totality of their it costs by $600 a month, which to a lot of people, you know, isn't that much money, but the question really comes down to, are you going to get $600 worth of additional value or offset to the point where you're not going negative. Like people think, oh, it's only 20 bucks a month. So I'm just going to sign up for it. Well, if you have a procurement policy where the CFO has a direct relationship, first off, the, the, the CFO has to sign off on things, but also IT has to sign off on things, then this opportunity to prevent that budget out of controlness. It, it's that opportunity is there. And the number one thing that business owners complain about is the cost of maintenance. So the best thing that they could do is get that procurement policy in place and be very thoughtful in working with their IT service provider and never, ever, ever procuring anything that they don't have a full understanding of the total cost of ownership for. You now, Azure is a great example of that. You know, in 18 months of Azure you're going to pay the same as a 7-year server on premise.
1: Well, and that gives you perspective of what yes, that that cost and maintenance and risk exposure is, but it also gives you that perspective because we've talked about this before of what's your regional uh, regional environmental aspects that you need to consider. So, like you had talked about having an associate that deals out in California. Well, they're willing to pay for that eighteen-month piece reoccurring because they may have a fire, or they may have a blackout, or they earthquakes. They mean t- earthquakes, like uh, New Zealand did a lot of that, where they moved a lot of stuff to the cloud probably five or six years ago because. Well, if they don't have any infrastructure, but they can at least get internet, they can get access to things. Maybe limited what they could do, and maybe not. But those are the regional environmental pieces that be like, okay, on prem is a much better financial make uh, sense. And, but we have to consider these other pieces. But that takes a maturity level to understand and acquire that information to make that decision. And that's where. That can be hard for people because it's time, energy, putting those things in and actually growing as a business to that maturity level to try and determine those things. They want I quick, think, easy, pill-popping yeah. aspects of, like, well, if I take this, bam, I have everything's magically done and fixed, and the world is a better place.
0: Yeah, I, I think they're, they're absolutely looking for the easy button. And I have to reiterate where I think the primary problem comes from. And the primary problem comes from executive management who just comes up with a strategy. They decide, oh, you know, we're going to buy people net, you know, or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And then they've just come to IT as an afterthought and then start riding hard like a, you know, a wet noodle for initially, and then just get more and more and more grumpy over time about why something isn't in yet. And it's like, well, because nobody gave the opportunity to IT to vet or assess anything before you went and spent the money on it. Mm-hmm and i've seen so much fraud and i do mean fraud over the years by software companies claiming that oh it's so easy we'll just do some professional services with us and you know we'll connect to your server and we'll do all the things and blah 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 you know so there's the sales process that happens in the software industry so grossly misleads individuals it's uh it's apocalyptic i mean it's pretty bad uh, there was another podcast we had where uh, Colin, who Colin Ruskin, the the CEO of Work Optima, was interviewed. and you know he's got over thirty years of experience in the software industry. And he spoke quite eloquently and lengthily on this topic of how most software that's out there is minimum viable product. And you don't know the total cost of ownership of something unless you really work at it work hard at trying to figure out what it is and if you don't do that pre-procurement or pre-contract sign-on assessment you not only lose leverage that you might have had with the software vendor but you know somebody in there desire to be like well let's just get a ticketing system in there any ticketing system any ticketing system will do because some ticketing system is better than no ticketing system (laughs) you know (laughs) you'll have somebody that does that and they're not making an informed decision and then it becomes poo has just rolled downhill onto somebody whose plate was probably already full and nothing is coming off of their plate and then the pressure is well we've paid for this thing We have got to get it implemented every single day that this thing is not implemented. We're losing money. You know, we paid for it and it's not implemented. And so point of of this is, I, I could probably go on with 150 stories like this, that executive management in their lack of operational maturity around how they make these types of decisions and how they manage it and the way in which they communicate these things to IT. They create the majority of the problems. They are also the solution to the problems because they can institute a procurement policy. The CFO can enforce the procurement policy. That procurement policy can have a vendor risk management, a third-party risk management, a software bill of materials analysis, et cetera. It can have an analysis in there on these things. I mean, I've said to clients for years, I don't understand why you'd buy a server when there is no server engineering plan. Now, if you'd like to see the server engineering plan, let's go through it by all means, right? But if if somebody comes to me and says, uh, I want you to buy this server so that we can do the server project, my answer is going to be, show me how the acquisition of that fulfills the workloads that I need to host great. You know, if they've got that server engineering plan that demonstrates that, well, hot doggy, you know, we're in business. But if they don't have that, when are they going to develop that? How did they arrive at the outcome that says, this is the hardware spec for the server that we want to buy, right? If they didn't do the engineering to begin with, when are they going to do the engineering? Somebody's got to do it sometime. And a procurement policy that's enforced can fix these problems. I leave it up for you to comment on that, Dan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that—that's the 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 piece of what is your plan and what are you dealing with? Like I said, I like analogies. Do you go and buy a vehicle just because you need a car, or you? going to forget that you might have a family you need to put in oh wait we do these vacations once a year twice a year probably need a little extra storage capacity oh we have a boat well can we put a pitch on it is it powerful enough to do it like these are kind of all of those thought processes that you would go into procuring a laptop a server piece of hardware again with software as well like you can't judge basically you can't judge a book by its cover And every piece of software, piece of hardware, whatever, there's a marketing slick in front of it. Makes it brighter, shinier than its competition, but doesn't really give you any real information. So it may be worth going through a proof of concept project to determine, hey, we bought these devices. We're kind of doing something new, one-off type of stuff with the potential of doing other things. Let's get one or two. Let's put it through its paces. And then that gives us a validation of yes, this will work, but with these things, or no, it won't work. Well, good thing we didn't buy 2000 tablets because that would have just blown up in our face. And now we've got 2000 bricks. Yep. So, well, to that end, there, you know,
0: until you actually try to go through something like that, you don't really know what the. Effective floor is. And what I mean by the effective floor is in many cases, like let's take tablets for an example, there's a minimum pricing floor for uh, the software, for the MDM system. And that's generally in the range of 150 to 250 devices. So, do most organizations understand that? And If they're like, hey, I only need 20 iPads. Well, do you understand you're going to pay for the MDM software fee that's going to cover up to 250 because, like, that's the floor? They don't know that. They just run over to Verizon. They go get some iPads. And they don't know all the risks of the ramifications because they didn't get strategic input from the CISO or the CIO and go through this process of getting an engineering plan and that, that develops and understands what is the total cost of ownership of the thing
1: before we buy it. Right. And then the other aspect that goes with implementing new technology, upgrades, those types of things. Whoever is servicing you internally, externally, mm-hmm. so with the IT service provider, do they have the skill sets that go along with that? Do they have the maturity of it? Do they have the experience? Can they compensate for these new ads, changes, those types of stuff in that environment to be able to support that go forward? Or are you looking at that additional soft cost that goes with it for ongoing maintenance? Great, it costs you $20 a month. That's fine. But you had to hire an engineer to maintain it. That's not $20 a month.
0: Right. Well,
1: and-
0: to to that end, this is where SAS is actually very helpful because SAS can get you closer to a flat rate fixed fee annual or monthly. But there's also a lot of other risks that the vast majority of people don't think about. They tend to only think about
1: budget risk. Well, and that's kind of kind of stem us back to the the original piece of pulling in for the patching and stuff, bringing up SaAS. It's if you were to put something on-prem, well you have all of that maintenance and everything else that goes with that with the sas, you're 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 transferring that over to that provider to be able to do that. But it's not a pickup. Here you go. I'm now expunged from everything. You've just transferred some of the risk over but you may have inherited additional risk now from that and vulnerabilities, depending on how it interconnects with things. So, Well, well and SaaS,
0: I just want to define here that SaaS is not the same as taking premise server workloads and hosting them in Azure. Because the only thing you did in that realm was drive up your costs because you're paying for somebody else's internet, their power yep. and their server equipment and you're paying their sales tax on so you're paying sales tax on the sales tax they already paid and their property tax that they already paid. You know, and the margin <laughs> that they already right. co- you know that they're collecting. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, that that that's a good point to bring up is it's not a software that is its sole purpose does things. You've just trained the the aspect of putting stuff in Azure or Amazon or Google, whatever your cloud provider infrastructure as a service vendor would be is you've just increased your costs and just basically transferred your server to someplace else in the country to live, but not necessarily fixed anything that may have actually been going on. Because if you haven't engineered it correctly in those cloud services... Well, it can make it worse. You, you can make it worse. You can make it just as bad as it was. You may not have improved it. And then you have to also look at, okay, what skill sets does that take on top of oh yeah, what team is already doing? So it's like it, there is, like you said, no easy button.
0: Well, you know, if you're going to do, well, we're going to have some servers hosted in Azure and we're going to have some on site. So you now have to have two separate backup systems, two separate vulnerability management systems, two control planes, two separate SIM logging, SOAR, XDR, you know, you're literally managing two separate systems. And the other thing that really usually sends me over the top with this is people think that they can have as good a security in the cloud as they can on premise. And I haven't seen it. And the reason I haven't seen it is because the cost for Azure Firewall is around $900 a month, whereas on-premise, you could spend, let's say, $4,000 over a three-year time period. Well, there's no contest. And so at $900 a month, if it takes you to have Azure Firewall to be able to have equivalent level of network layer security in Azure as you would if you had it on-premise. Nobody's writing the check for $900 a month except an organization that's got 30 servers to protect. What's the compute cost on 30 servers in Azure? Well, it's into the holy chicken biscuits phase.
1: Yeah, and no, it's is that is that worth all of those pieces and parts just to say, ooh, I have it in the cloud. Has cloud pricing come down over the last decade? Sure. But it's still a fallacy that I have it in the cloud and it's better and cheaper. And probably will be for a very long time because you have to also worry about as those things change, they have hardware costs, they need to replace stuff, they may have an outage. Outage, Azure... Amazon, Google, they're not infallible to having a mass outage. We've seen it. I think this year, last year definitely, of key components and people now have lost access to their servers. Not well, because at, and it's bas- basically no. cuz of a, a poor patching is typically the cause of it or network update. Well,
0: and, and look at the difference between opex and capex.
1: Right. So
0: Even let's just say you do Azure reserved instances and you've got, you know, guaranteed pricing up to a a certain point in time. You still have to keep paying every month. I know organizations that went out of business because when COVID hit, they could not lever down. They had increased the structural floor, the structural cost of doing business, to a degree that was not sustainable when they had a substantial revenue decline. So they were less resilient as an organization because they had not engaged in CapEx when they had the budget to do so. They said, oh, we want to smooth our earnings. So we want to make our year-over-year income and expenses match up. So we're going to go on an OPEX basis. and." They just really were not big enough dogs to, to engage in that game. I mean, you got to be a pretty big dog to uh, to engage in that game. For the vast majority of the SMB market, it's a much wiser approach to save up, put money in a capital reserve account, do the CapEx when they have it planned out to do so, and then they can weather the storms with inflation, financial uncertainties. The other thing I've heard quite a lot of is that people who were knowledge- who had that capital reserve and they were knowledgeable that inflation was increasing, they had the funds and they were ready to rock and roll. And they were like, well, we've got our life cycle management here in place. We're going to go buy that stuff now. And we're going to get out ahead of it and save you know, 15, 20%. Well, if you're just on an OPEX model and you're renting your servers every month, you don't have that as an option.
1: Yeah. And that was, what was it? We were taught, we talked about that. It was one of the big, big companies that was, they basically bought 15,000 laptops and other stuff because they knew stuff was happening, but realized we're going to have inflation. We have the chip shortage, like all of these other factors were like, we need to pull the trigger now because it will be less pain now than it would be if we were to penny pinch or, not have that ability later and it could have easily been three months later and things just went haywire. So.
0: And that is also part of vulnerability management.
1: (laughs) Being aware of your surroundings. What's the, what's the uh, factors that are happening now globally and what parts And pieces do you need? Because it could be as simple as, okay, there was no chip shortage. So like your IT infrastructure piece is not necessarily effective. Well, what else do you do as a business? Do you have fuel that you need to deal with? Do you have parts that go to different stuff? There's been plenty of stories where manufacturing has basically needed a chip for their widget that they produce. And they went and bought washing machines to rip the chips out to put them in their machine. Because they needed the chips and it was cheaper to buy the washing machine, pull the chip out and put it in their thing. And they had the ability to ship those machines out. But then it's like, what's the downstream effect for those? Like, are you being affected by that? Because you're uh, downstream from those bigger players that might take up your resources for you to continue in as a business? Are you being aware of that? Are you being vigilant? So So fundamentally, we have,
0: there's an enormous difference between vulnerability and patch management. And this is why I think we're both exasperated by all of the times that we see competitor IT service providers put proposals out there that say, oh, hey, we're going to patch your servers and all of your workstations for 50 bucks a month Per endpoint and what's included in that well windows updates and air quote some third-party patches well what third-party patches are we talking about here
1: right are they even third-party patches that I care about I even have in my environment what if everything that they patch you don't have well what's the value in that
0: yeah I mean big disconnect between What an organization is required to do in terms of due care, due diligence, and compliance with cybersecurity insurance and federal regulations, and what that IT service provider is providing. Enormous differential and gap there. And when these business decision makers are looking only at the very narrow band topic of budget risk, then they just they fail to become informed consumers of these services and it's not a utility let's talk about that for just you know briefly here before we wrap up i've heard some people claim that it is a utility and i vehemently disagree first off most utilities are monopolies you know the electricity company the water utility garbage pickup, um, fire and safety, you know, and your ISP. I mean, how many do you actually get to pick from and how many cell phone providers are there actually out there? Two? Are there actually like two companies that actually have backbone because everybody else just rides on top of those. So in effect, utilities are almost exclusively
1: Monopoly-driven. And well, tend to be uni- unitaskers as well. They only do one thing. They pick up your garbage, and you never see anything. Pow- they supply you water. Great. There's some pieces that go along with that, but IT as a utility, it's that's a misnomer. Just the complexity and everything that goes along with it it's not a, I have a computer, I have IT. Wow. Well, I can give you a computer, no operating system, no other software, what good does it do to you? Nothing.
0: Well, I think it, it also causes people to think that if IT is a utility, therefore it's a commodity. Hmm. And if it's a commodity, then it doesn't matter whether I'm with Verizon or AT&T. And in reality, you and I both know that it actually does matter. Whether you're with Verizon and AT&T, because they both have pros and cons, you know, and you still need to understand those pros and cons in order to make an informed decision. But at least it's like closer, you know, it's closer versus, uh, you know, like we energies is just we energies. That's it. You want electricity? You got two options. Get yourself a generator and a whole bunch of propane tanks and go to town.
1: (laughs) Right you know very 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 few options to do that or you're (laughs) attached to the grid and you're deal with things that happen because even if you're on we energies somebody some squirrel decides to take a bite out of a transformer and fries itself you you don't have any power for your house well let's not forget the drunk drivers
0: and you know, drunk drivers taking out a, a telephone pole and next thing you know, you got counterparty risk.
1: <laughs> right, you know? right.
0: But, you know, I think your your uh, metaphor of it being uh, a, you know, unitasker is uh, is very good because, you know, the people who say that IT is a utility, they are trying to advocate for IT being an absolute raw necessity that you need to function. And I don't think anybody's actually arguing that that's not the case. Like, oh my gosh, let's just go back to paper. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Like, That's not really a workable approach.
1: It is feasible, but again, it has its costs and benefits to it because it's not a, well, you went back to paper. Great, everything's right in the world. Storage, how do you retain stuff? Do you need to get the carbon paper back out from like the 80s to have things in duplicate or your handwriting stuff? 3 4 times so you've got it in triplicate quadruplicate type of thing like it has its it has its infrastructure requirements as well. Yeah. So
0: well, you know, so when these business decision makers are trying to manage budget risk their procurement process for IT service providers is all whack because they are not starting with a set of requirements. You know, I'm reminded of when I was looking at enable as an RMM uh, and it was my process that actually saved me. So here's what happened was that I put forth a approximately 50 page document that had, this is my set of requirements. And it was exquisitely detailed. And I had that reviewed by two engineers at enable. And I said, my adoption of your software Is contingent upon you saying affirmatively by two engineers in your company that your software can do the things that you say it can do, that it will meet these specified needs, right? So I define the set of requirements and I define them very clearly, and it was done in writing. And I got responses in writing from two of their engineers that says, yep, 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 it can do it. Well, so I go and blow three three months of my life trying to make their garbage software work and at the end of the day i ended up getting data out of one of the support engineers that oh no it doesn't do that and it's never going to do that okay so i just wasted 3 months on software 3 months of my time and so then i sent this to enables a uh, customer or account representative and say you know cancel my subscription because You know, I'm done. You guys are in contract violation with me. And, you know, then they're like, oh, lawyers. And I'm like, hey, bring it on. Because I got all the documentation right here that says that I engaged in good faith negotiations with you where I put it in writing specifically exactly what I needed. What were my criteria and terms and conditions? And you had two of your people say you could do that. And now I have a third person from your company saying, no, it doesn't do that. And it'll never do that. So we're done, you know? So my point in the story is that if business decision makers were using a proper approach, starting with the requirements, then they would be much more successful in identifying an IT service provider business partner that's a good match for them. But I never see anybody do that. You know, they they call up and they're like, oh, I want an assessment. And then like, give me a proposal. A proposal for what? What exactly are your requirements? Oh, well, you know, we only want to pay five grand a month. Okay, what would you like to not have as a service then? And so the entire discussion ends up being reversed. And the end result is that the business changes horses. They get a new IT service provider. And then the new IT service provider stealthily, sneakily over time comes to them and says, well, you know, you don't have this. You know, you don't have that. And you don't have this. And the next thing you know, probably within a year, they've exceeded whatever money they used to spend with the old IT service provider. So where's your budget risk? I mean, if you want to manage budget risk, you have to start, I think, with a very, very clear definition of what do you have as cybersecurity insurance requirements that you need to comply with? What are your regulatory requirements you need to comply with? You know, what are the state and federal and whatever's in your industry? And, uh, and actually start with a list of those requirements. And if nobody has any idea how to do that, go look at the documentation from NIST, CISA, and your cybersecurity insurance application. And if your proposals that you're looking at do not include 100% effective accomplishment of the outcomes that your business needs in order to comply with those things, well, then, you know, you're looking at proposals that are not going to meet your needs.
1: So comments, Dan? It's right. of You're having whatever your industry requires, your insurance needs, those types of stuff. And that's a great place to start with a lot of organizations is just to be like, what do they all say? What are my requirements for? At least gives you an initial framework of questions to ask going, well, how are you going to do this? To give you that analysis of a proposal the other piece like you talked about is the aspect of yes it might only be so many dollars per month for certain things and then stuff just kind of creeps up but if you're not paying attention in the first place on reporting on those things how are you going to know until one day you're just like oh we just looked at a report from the last two years and figured out we just blew this amount of money, which is like more than we were paying the last organization we work with. Okay. Like it's one of those things of having management of what those things are and that you could consider that as a vulnerability of attacking your budget constraint, your budget constraints and that piece of, all of the decision making, all this other stuff has now eroded what you thought you were saving. You've misrepresentated what you were projecting, depending on your your level in the organization, to say, "Well, we were going to save this much, and now we have paid twenty percent higher than what we were paying before.
0: you know you so, you bring up an excellent point where you know an organization can't have it both ways. They can't simultaneously say, we want to manage the budget and control that budget. But simultaneously, we want to abdicate our involvement in that process. So we go back to the whole easy button, which gets most people into trouble. Like, oh, I want to find an IT service provider that's just going to give me everything for $5,000 a month. And they don't even understand what air quote everything is or what they're getting or they're not getting and what the implications of those things are. They want the easy button. They want someone to hire, to trust, to delegate to, and then they tend to abdicate. And I understand that it is challenging to circle back and engage in those quadrant two activities that are important, but not blazingly urgent. Like, oh, well, we're not gonna meet with the IT service provider this month. You know, we we don't have anything to talk about. Well, that's horse hockey. You've always got something important you need to talk about. If you're not talking, that's the problem, okay?
1: Right. <laughs> like,
0: that's where the problems come from. And so, you know, they can't have it both ways. They can't have it where like, well, we wanna have budgetary control. Oh, And we want to be able to manage that budget risk, but yet we're not going to commit to number one, making the time and two, to engaging in open and honest, proactive discussions. And I see a whole lot of like rotting and festering going on and a whole lot of perception that, well, you know, we're the customer, so we expect the vendor to solicit us. Well, that's really not benefiting you in the best approach. I mean, our best customers are the ones who proactively reach out to us before something, you know, happens. Like, great example, gee, our parking lot is going to get paved this weekend, and we're a retail establishment. Hey, Felicia, what can we do with our phone system? And let's just say it's a Monday, right, and the parking lot's going to get paved on Saturday. You know, normally we're open on Saturday. What can we do with our phone system proactively to inform everyone who calls the business this week that, hey, you know, don't come on Saturday. Don't, don't make a trip and get all frustrated that you wasted your time because there ain't no parking because the parking lot's getting repaved and you get no place to park. So we're shut down on Saturday, right? This is the kind of proactive thinking and that open and honest communication that not only makes that business more profitable, it improves their relationship with their customers, and there was no scramble, scramble, scramble. You know that went in, that request happened on a Monday, goes in on a Monday night, Bango, bango, you got all week all week long where your callers are getting the correct information. So it, it, this communication has got to be a two way street
1: mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's always the the benefit of having those things because those conversations may spark additional items of needing to request or, hey, I had questions regarding X, Y, Z. Well, let's talk about those things or, and just creates the relationship, the trust between the two parties to know that either one has the best interest of the other in that partnership. And that's where i've seen it personally just degrade because of the lack of priority or the willingness to do those things in a matter of open dialogue make time commitment for those things and i've had almost every single one just end poorly and everybody's left unhappy because people are willing to unwilling to have open dialogue on a reoccurring basis to address things while they're small before they turn into a, a festering wound that people become grudgingly attached to and takes far more effort and energy to fix that could have been easily dealt with with picking up the phone or discussing during a, a reoccurring meeting that's of an appropriate uh, reoccurrence. So, like monthly or more frequently, depending on the type of organization. So, yep. Well, um,
0: wow, we have covered vulnerability management. <laughs>
1: <laughs> vulnerability management, it's easy to say, uh, it's not simple.
0: Uh, I think we're going to have to do part 2.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cuz I
0: don't I don't think we actually really covered what the heck is complete patch management. We kind of scratched the surface. Yeah. on that one. So, we'll have to do part 2 on that shortly here, but uh, I guess we're just going to call this one vulnerability management. Well, thanks Dan and right. uh, to uh, all of you who are listening, please do send us your comments and questions. You can find us on QPC Security. Dot com.